Everybody hanging in there? Yeah. All right. <laughs> That's a good thing. If you have your Bible, uh, we're going to be in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13 is just the one verse we're going to be looking at. We'll definitely have other verses thrown in there. But uh, if you don't have a Bible, I'm sure that we have some in the pew probably in front of you. And you are free to absolutely use those as well. So today we're going to be talking about assurance of victory over sin. And we've been going through this series for a couple weeks now. So just to bring you up a little bit today, uh, these are some assurances of the Christian life that I learned when I was a very young Christian. Uh, when I first became Christian at University of Illinois in uh, Champaign-Urbana, the freshman year there, and I got involved with a group called the Navigators, and we started learning about these different assurances, and they have been very comforting to me uh, during the past many, many years, and I hope will be an encouragement to you. We've been through these before, actually. So we're uh, kind of doing a repeat, but there, it's good for us to know this every so often, right? As a reminder of us. So we have already talked about a couple of them. There's five altogether. We've already talked about a couple. We've talked about the assurance of forgiveness that in Christ Jesus and because of our faith and trust in him, we can have the assurance that our sins have been forgiven. And so that's a very important one, obviously. The second one that we talked about is assurance of prayer. Is can, and it answers a question, can a Christian expect that their prayers would be heard and answered? And we said, yes, resoundingly so. The prayers of Christians are heard by God and they're answered. They're answered in various ways. We won't go into all of the details of that. Other than in prayer, it is essentially important that we understand and know God's will when we pray, right? If we pray according to his will, we will get a positive answer every single time. And so then we had a, a, we had a little bit of a break for Mother's Day, but now we're coming back and we're going to be talking about the assurance of victory over sin or over temptation. You could put either one of those in there. And to be, to be awesome, to be, not, not to be awesome, but to be uh, totally, totally honest, I think this is the one that we most doubt. We most doubt that we have the assurance of victory over temptation. In other words, I hear all the time, well, we're only human, right? Have you ever heard that? We're only human. We still sin, right? We still sin, and sometimes we give the excuse, well, we're only human. But are we really, truly only human? For those of us that are in Christ, are we truly only human? And the answer to that is no, of course. We have the Holy Spirit, think of that, holy. <laughs> we have the Holy Spirit within us to guide us and to direct us and to give us strength and power to overcome sin in our life. And that doesn't mean that I believe that we will attain a level of perfection in this life, I believe that will ultimately be completed when we see Jesus face to face and we will be like him. Amen. But it doesn't give us an excuse to continue on in our sin. And so we'll talk about that even more as we get into this a little bit more. Uh, but can I have a victorious life over sin? And the answer is going to be certainly yes, we can. Sin is not to be our master. And you'll hear me 
say that several different times. We probably in this lifetime will never truly get rid of all sin, but sin is not our master any longer. Amen? <laughs> it's not our master. At one time, uh, sin was our master, but not anymore. So let's go ahead and turn to that scripture. We always like to stand for the reading of God's word. It's just one verse, but uh, we'll read this together and then have a word of prayer and get into the rest of the sermon. So 1 Corinthians 10, 13. It's Paul writing. He says, No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for your word. Uh, each and every week we meet here and read your word and study it, and we are thankful that we have a word of God that has been faithfully transmitted to us through all these years, and we can rest assured that it's truly the words of God that we are studying and speaking of. And we thank you that through them we gain truth and encouragement, truth about our condition and truth about uh, who we are and our need for Christ, but also encouragement uh, as we are Christians to continue to live the Christian life, even though it is a difficult life for us to live. We will admit that, that this quest for holiness, this quest for uh, to be like Christ is a difficult path for us to be on. It takes effort on our part. And so we pray that you would help us to be ready to give that effort, to understand your word and what it says, and to be fully convinced in our minds that the Holy Spirit within us is able to do this. We ask all these things in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. So obviously, I, I believe this issue is very important. I believe it's important for us as a church. I think it's important also for us as a society. You know, there was at one time a group of people called the Puritans. You guys remember the Puritans or heard that name before? Yeah. Closely associated with the Pilgrims, which I'm sure we've all heard, the Pilgrims were those who saw that the church needed to be reformed and it was beyond reformation. And so they separated from the church and many of them ended up coming, of course, over to the United States. Uh, but the Puritans were those in England who believed that, yes, the church can be reformed, it can be changed if we stick in there and, and we try to reform the church. And so the Puritans tried to do that and but both groups had several things in common, and the one that I want to talk about is that they both had a desire to pursue holiness in their individual and corporate lives. Does that make sense? They wanted to pursue holiness. They were not satisfied to live like the rest of the world. They believed that when Jesus saves us from sin, they, they, he also saves us from the power of sin in this world, and so they were, just as scripture commanded, dedicated to pursuing holiness. And that means, of course, doing a lot of things differently than the world. It means uh, forsaking sin. It means to uh, seek out those things which are good rather than evil. And this, of course, is a very difficult for thing for us to do. If we, if we start thinking of ourselves as 
Puritans, first of all, Puritan was a, was a name that was given to him to make fun of them. So it's not a name they took on themselves, but it was a name given to them to make fun of them. And so they were called Puritans because they emphasized purity in their life. And we should do that too. And if we do that in our lives, we're probably going to be made fun of as well, right? We might as well get ready for that. If we're going to try to be sexually pure, if we're trying to be pure as far as uh, whether we tell lies or whether we honor our father and mother or whether we covet, all of those things, if we try to do those things, especially in our culture today, we are probably going to be made fun of. But this is important, I think, for us to do. It's important for us to be conformed to the image of Christ, to begin to look like Jesus Christ so we can set that pattern before other people and that they will believe that Jesus Christ is true and real and that there is salvation in him. So pursuing purity is important. Romans 8.13 says this. Now listen to this the seriousness with which Paul writes this. He says, for if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. That's a very serious verse, right? It says that if you live according to the flesh, in other words, the flesh means our, our natural uh, fallen nature instincts. If you just continue to live those, the, live by those, feeding the body uh, and satisfying all of its desires, then you will die. You will die physically, you will die spiritually, you will be separated from God. But it goes on and always gives the good news second. It says, but if by the spirit you put to death of the deeds of the body, you will live. This is the good news. It's not done by us. It's done by us and the Holy Spirit. Did you notice that? It says, but if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. There is a putting to death the sinful deeds of the body that must take place. Amen? <laughs> That's true, right? That's true. We'll, we'll see more of that. We don't hear much about it in Christianity anymore. We hear about Jesus and his death on the cross and how it paid the penalty for our sin and that believing and trusting him, we have eternal life. And that is all true. But the rest of the story is that he wants to work out that same holiness in our everyday lives as well. John Owen, who was a Puritan, says that we should be killing sin or it will be killing us. In other words, in the Christian life, if, you're, if you have professed to be a Christian and you don't deal with this sin problem, then ultimately it's probably going to reveal that you never were a Christian at all, but you've let this sin run rampant in your life. It's been your master, and that's not true of a Christian. It was Jesus who said, if your right hand, cause, if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. If your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. That's the seriousness of the topic that we are dealing with. Now, should you cut your hand off? No, you stop sinning, right? You stop doing that sin, right? That's, that's an exaggeration on Jesus's part. We're not to cut our hand off or, or pluck, our, pluck our eye out, but the moral of that verse is to stop that type of sin. 
And so even the writer of the book of Hebrews kind of gets in on this bandwagon. He says, we are to strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. That should make us all stop and think, right? Am I striving for holiness? It says that if I need to strive for this holy, holiness and without that holiness, no one sees the Lord. So I better be striving for that holiness. And so I wrote down a little statement that I think kind of clarifies that a little bit, but there is a striving for a holiness which is evidence of a true faith, amen? <laughs> it's, there is a striving that we should have for holiness which is evidence of a true faith. And because of our true faith, sin will not be our master. Okay, so I wanna get into this a little bit more clearly because I don't want it, anyone to go away from here confused about this. What is our standing in Christ when we are a believer? We are perfectly 100% holy, amen? We are perfectly 100% holy. Let's read some scripture from 1 Corinthians 15. It says, when the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Right? Amen. Amen. The victory comes through Jesus Christ. And so this is, a, I want to reassure you that our salvation is not ultimately based upon us striving for holiness. Us striving for holiness is a result of us actually having been saved. What stands, what stands in the gap for us is the blood of Jesus Christ. Amen? Amen. That's what that verse is talking about. He is the victory. His shedding of the blood on the cross is our victory. And so when God looks at us, looks at a believer, he sees nothing but the righteousness of Christ. But now that he sees that, he says, now go live that out. So what is true about you internally that you are righteous because of the blood of Christ, he says, now go work that out in your everyday life. You see, in our lives, there should be a progression of holiness. And if I could draw a chart, I would. I'd draw a chart, but I'll try to draw it backwards. But if I were to graph holiness on this line, we should be, grad we should be gradually going up, right? And there may be periods where we come to an understanding of holiness and it jumps up. There may be times where temptations get us down and we sink down a little bit, but this line should continually be going up into Christ-likeness, into holiness. That's why I think Paul says that we are to work out our salvation. This goes right along with what, uh, it, what God has told us about acting like our, the salvation that we have. But Paul says this, he says, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. 
Now let's just stop and look at that verse for a little bit. We've done this several times, right? We've looked at this verse several times. But it says that we are to work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Notice what it did not say. It did not, we are to, it did not say we are to work for our salvation. That would be wrong, right? We do not work for our salvation. Christ has provided everything we need. But there is a salvation within us that needs to be worked out. It needs to be lived out in community with the church and with other people. And so we are constantly looking for the, what the salvation that is inside the righteousness of Christ to work out to work out into the rest of the world so the rest of the world can see that. Notice that it says that it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So even this working out of salvation is done by God who works in us. In other words, the Holy Spirit within us. You guys all did know that you have the Holy Spirit, right? Amen. If you're a believer in Christ, you are given the Holy Spirit, given as a deposit, guaranteeing ultimately that we will receive final salvation, but also as a helper who will help us in this quest for holiness or pursuit of holiness. And so ultimately this kind of section I've been talking about can be kind of summarized by this statement. And Jesus might say it like this. He might say, what I have done for your standing before God, you must work out in your everyday life for others to see. That's what I believe people are waiting to see from Christians. They're waiting to see that our lives are really different. Are we kind? Are we loving? Are we the encouraging people that we are supposed to be? <coughs> Unfortunately, sometimes we're in this struggle with our own sin and it's being master over us that we don't do so well in loving other people. There is a struggle that goes on in the Christian, right, with sin. We, we, we need to admit that. There's still a struggle. That's good news, by the way, because dead people don't struggle. Uh, people who are not saved do not struggle against sin, but we do struggle against sin. Unfortunately, it can be victory, victory less struggling. It can be defeated or joyless struggling against sin. And sometimes I know I've got to the point where I just feel like there's no fight left in me. You ever been to that place? in your sin where you feel like there's no play, there's no fight left in me. That's kind of where I realize I've been trying to do it too much. <laughs> you know, I, I haven't been relying upon the Holy Spirit to do that. We must, of course, fight with the fight of faith against sin. We must pursue holiness, that's for sure, but it's in the power of the Holy Spirit that we must do that. And so the first thing we must do is renounce any ability of our own to be able to fight against this sin that is still left within us. It must be done by the Holy Spirit. We must strive against the flesh, but it's a striving empowered by the Holy Spirit. To be honest, in our nation, there are people who call themselves Christian and they are not struggling against sin. They're not struggling at, at all. They're not reading their Bible. 
Um, they're effectively saying, I don't really need to fight this. Uh, I'm doing okay. Um, God will tolerate my sin. They're not doing God's work. And they're just kind of giving in to sin. And when you're tired, it's easy to do that. It's easy to give in to sin. So the question is, are you in the fight today against sin? <laughs> are you battling against indwelling sin in your life? That's the question that we're asking. And if you are a true Christian today, then I say, yes, you are struggling. First thing we need to realize is that from this verse that we've read, 1 Corinthians 10, 13, that your sin is not a special circumstance. That's exactly what it says, right? It says, no temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. That just means that your sin is not a special circumstance. Someone else has experienced your sin and someone else by the power of the Holy Spirit has overcome that sin and you can too. You can overcome that sin. And when I say sin, you know, I'm looking out over the crowd and it could be a variety of different things, right? And I think probably each of, each of us has a, maybe one sin that we have particular difficulty with. <laughs> but there's probably more than that as well. But your sin is not a special circumstance. Your temptations are common to everyone. And your temptation to sin is not greater than that of someone else. You may feel like Satan is particularly persistent in attacking you, but let me guarantee you that others are being attacked in the same way and maybe in a, in a different degree. The reason I emphasize this is that we can't really use our sin as an excuse for sinning. And it comes down to it, all sinning really comes from the heart. And we've talked about this many, many different times. It's not, it's not necessarily our body. We talk about our flesh, but it's not necessarily our body. Our body is not evil. It's the inclinations of our heart that are bad. And that's exactly what James 4, a verse that we've read many times before, but it's very instructional for us today. It says, what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? In other words, what causes sin among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and you do not have, so you murder, you covet, and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. It's a matter of the heart. It's what's going on in here that really causes sin. And what, what's going in here usually either comes out through the mouth in harsh words or bad language, or it comes out in our actions in maybe unloving actions towards others. It's a matter of the heart. For instance, gossip. You, when you gossip, you put down others to glorify or build up yourselves in other people's eyes. That's essentially what gossip is. Adultery or lust is a relationship you value more than you love God. If you get right down to it, that's what it is. Lying. We make ourselves look better than what we are. Shows a lack of trust in God. Coveting, which I think is rampant in the United States. We don't talk about coveting very much. But if you want somebody else's money, that's coveting, right? <laughs> if you want somebody else's money or their other people's things, 
That is coveting. Coveting, we don't trust God to provide what we need. And so your sin is not a special circumstance. We are all under, not under the power of sin, but we are all under the temptation of being tempted by these on a daily basis. The verse goes on and it says that God is faithful to us. He does not leave us under our sin. Aren't you thankful for God that does not leave us like that and leave us in our sin? Jesus was the only person that never sinned. Hebrews 4.15 says, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Your Savior was tempted in every way that we have been tempted, and yet he was able to say no, and he is there to help us. That's true, right? He's there to help us. Through the Holy Spirit, he's there to help us. He helps us with our sin. Hebrews also says, for because he himself has has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. In other words, he's been in your position for before. He knows what it's like to be tempted and, and to want to do that sin so badly. And yet he always turned away from that sin and never committed it. God is also faithful in that he has limited the intensity of our temptation to our strength in the Holy Spirit, right? It's not our own strength, but it's the strength in the Holy Spirit. Someone always has been asking the question here lately, does God ever give you more than what you can endure? And the answer is yes. (laughs) He does give you more than you can endure, but with the Holy Spirit, you can endure all things. And that's exactly what this verse says. God is faithful. He will not not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation will also provide a way of escape. He provides us a way of escape to endure temptation. And so when we are tempted, we should be looking for that way of escape, amen? We should be looking for that way of escape. Jesus was tempted in a way, right? Now you can look at temptation two different ways. He was tempted by Satan who came and presented things before him. And then there's a temptation where you're actually, uh, you're giving in. You're tempted to the point of giving in. And of course, Jesus was never tempted in that way, but he was tempted by Satan. And do you remember what his way of escape was? He quoted scripture, right? That was his way of escape. He quoted scripture. And so that would be a good lesson for us, right? Know our scripture. When a certain temptation comes up, know what the Bible says about that. And quote that back to Satan. And not let yourself be tempted in that area. One thing I want to say as a means of avoiding temptation as well is the joy that we have in Christ when we are not sinning. Amen? (laughs) The joy that we have in Christ when we are not sinning. Uh, I have written down here a little bit later, how do you value your relationship with God? 
the amount to which you value your relationship with God is probably the amount of uh, resistance you have to temptation. Does that make sense? The more you love God, the less likely you are to be tempted. I believe that. Uh, and so we love God, but we must come to hate sin. <laughs> Do you hate your sin? I've gotten to a point where I hate my sin. I hate my sin. Think of how sin robs the joy of your salvation. It does. It doesn't can't take away your salvation, but it can take away the joy of your salvation. Think of what sin, what sin has done in your life. Think about how it makes you ineffective in ministry. Think of what the sin that you are struggling with did to your Savior as he was nailed to the cross. When I think about those things, I hate sin. We must hate sin, right? It's okay to hate sin. And we should hate it. We should prepare against sin. We should value our relationship with God. We should know the Bible. We should trust in Christ to deliver us. We should pray, 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 right? Down on our knees kind of prayer where we humble ourselves and we say, Lord, I can't do this without your help. Will you please help me out of this situation? And I believe that he will be true to that prayer. We must avoid sin at all costs. Give it no quarter in your life and run from it. I had an illustration here by John Maxwell. He's talking about sin and he's comparing it to walking down the street. I think I've read this before too. I'm getting to the point where I'm repeating myself. But he says, uh, he says this as an illustration against being tempted by sin. He says, I walk down the street. There's a deep hole in the sidewalk. I fall in. I am lost. I am helpless. It isn't my fault. It takes forever to find a way out. I walk down the street. There's a deep hole in the sidewalk. I pre pretend that I don't see it. I fall in again. I can't believe I'm in the same place, but it isn't my fault. It still takes a long time to get out. Third time, I walk down the same street. There's a deep hole in the sidewalk. I see it, it is there, I still fall in. It's a habit. My eyes are open, I know where I am. It is my fault. I get out immediately. I walk down the same street. There's a deep hole in the sidewalk. I walk around it. I walk down another street. Does that, make sense? Does that make sense to you? Yeah, we toy around with sin sometimes by being next to it or associating very closely with it. And we think that it's not going to draw us in, but the hole in the solid sidewalk draws us in every time until we finally get the smarts and take another street. Duh, dummy, take another street. It's exactly what Joseph did, right? Joseph knew this rule of the street <laughs> with the hole in the sidewalk because when he was tempted, he ran the other direction. And that's exactly what we should do. We should run the other direction. 
Jonathan Owens in his book, The Mortification of Sin, he put it this way. Uh, you must, well, I already quoted it. He said, you must be killing sin or it will be killing you. He says, we must starve it to death. We cannot feed the monster. In other words, we can't, we can't let parts of, of our life be associated with sin and expect that we are not going to fall into it. We must starve it to death. Don't feed the monster. And I'll repeat Romans 8, 13. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. So we must starve sin to death. Be killing sin or it will be killing you. And you might be asking, well, how can I do that? How can I do that? Well, we can avoid the things that are causing us to be tempted, right? If it's the internet, then we don't go to the internet. If it's, if it's uh, objectionable sites on the internet, then there are software that can keep us from going to those, those particular sites. If it's, uh, if it's TV, then maybe it's TV. If it's our cell phones, then we avoid our cell phones. But there's other types of sin than those, right? There's a type of sin of relationships and we must be quick to be obedient to what God's word said, especially in relationships that if we offend someone, then we go and we ask for forgiveness for those and mend that relationship. Number six I have on your handout there is that we need to not only be killing sin, but fight for joy. What we're really doing when we're talking about putting sin to death and overcoming sin in our life is fighting for joy because sin will take the joy right out of your life. And joy of the Lord is our strength. I think that's a verse somewhere, Nehemiah 8.10. The joy of the Lord is our strength. So let that joy motivate us to overcome sin. Let us remember that Jesus has paid the price fully for our sin and that we are perfectly righteous before him. Let us remember that we are to strive for peace and for purity without which no one will see the Lord. And let us understand that we have a new master now, Jesus, and sin is no longer our master. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for this time. We thank you for your word and we thank you for uh, the message that you have overcome sin and that we must merely use the power of the Holy Spirit to overcome sin on our life. Doesn't mean that we will be perfect, but it does mean that we have a new master and our allegiance is to Jesus Christ and no longer to our sin. We thank you for that and we ask for help in areas where we may still be struggling because we want to have that joy that uh, we've all experienced before. We want to keep that and we want that joy to spread around the world. We want people to see that Jesus really does deliver us from sin. And so help us to be the people that you have created us to be. And we ask all these things in Christ's name, amen.
Yeah.